the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And are there some significant marks of a disciple that we can look for? Well, the answer is yes, as we'll see next on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. so much that it's a checkoff list to see whether or not I am a disciple of Christ, but they are three marks of grace that God will give to us to remind us that we are indeed His. Welcome to today's program. This is Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. We're looking at those three essential marks of a disciple found in Mary of Bethany of all people. We're in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. We would invite you to join us now for today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. Jesus is going back now to Bethany, knowing Lazarus is dead. And the first one to greet him is Martha. Let us read verses 17 through 27. Then Jesus came. He found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. And Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which shall come into the world. That's Martha talking here, beloved. And notice the story. Jesus took that length of time to get there. Possibly because of a common Jewish superstition of that day. That the soul of a person stays near the grave for three days, hoping some way or another to get back into that body. But on the fourth day, it was said, on the day of composition, there is absolutely no way for the soul to come back and resuscitate the body. And Jesus wanted people to know that there was no superstition in effect here as he brings Lazarus back to life. Secondly, he says, the Jews were there to comfort Mary. And the Jews is a phrase that was used in John's gospel to note note the enemies of Christ. Then Martha gives an expression of her faith, a profession of faith. It was a great profession. She says, I know that God will do whatever you ask him to do. I know that my brother will rise again in the resurrection. I do believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Even her statement 
If you had been here, he would not have died. Wasn't of rebuke, beloved. I think rather that it was an expression of regret. And Jesus doesn't simply say to Martha then in comforting her that he'll be given resurrection and life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. There is no resurrection and life apart from me. I'm the one who brings the experience of life of heaven into the life of my disciples here on earth. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, even though he were dead spiritually, shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? He will live, even if he dies, means the moment a person puts his trust in Jesus Christ, Christ brings into that person's experience the life of heaven. He's saying, Martha, I'm not promising you something in the future. I'm bringing into your life a present power right now that is going to change everything. Martha, with all of her faults, was most certainly a woman of faith. She gave a tremendous and orthodox profession of faith. She said, I have believed. And that is in the perfect tense. She said, I have a faith once given to me by God and that permanently remains in me forever. That's what a perfect tense denotes. I have believed, not I just believe. I have believed that God gave me a faith. It's permanent, it's here now, and it will be here forever. And notice the word I. There are two ways to write I in Greek. One is your normal, everyday way, you know, I decide to do this. But Martha uses the emphatic ego. I have believed whatever anyone else thinks, whatever these Jews do and who are trying to console me, whatever anyone else does, I have placed my trust in Jesus. I notice now an important conjunction. It says, I have believed that. And then she tells you the things that she believes. In other words, her faith wasn't vague and contentless. It had definite doctrinal content. She believed everything Jesus had told her. She believed what she had learned from the Old Testament. She believed the entire Word of God written up to that point. And after meeting Martha, then Mary comes out to be comforted by Jesus. Let's read verses 28 through 32. And when she had, had so said, she went her way and called Mary her sister, secretly saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she rose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then, which were with her in the house and comforted her when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Mary greets Jesus, and once again, where is she? She's at the feet of Jesus. And notice Jesus' response in verses 33 through 37. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping who came with her, He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of him who was blind have kept this man also from dying? 
You know, beloved, there is the shortest verse in Scripture. Jesus wept. But you need to understand the words that brought about this weeping. It says in verse 33 that when he saw Mary weeping and the Jews weeping also over Mary's grief and the death of Lazarus, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And out of being deeply moved in spirit and troubled came tears from Jesus' eyes. Now these words, deeply moved and troubled, in Greek denote a person full of anger. Let me read you a quote from one of the greatest Christian scholars that's ever lived, at least I feel, Benjamin Warfield. Think, why was Jesus so troubled, so full of rage that tears came out of his eyes? Warfield said, it is death. That is the object of his wrath, and behind death him who has the power of death, that is Satan, and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage, and he advances to the tomb, in Calvin's word, a champion who prepares for conflict. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but a decisive instance and open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. What John does for us in this particular statement is to uncover to us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation. Not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe. Jesus smites him in our behalf. Jesus hates death. He hates the one who has the power of death. He sees how this satanic death has come into the lives of his dear friends and he's enraged. But he has come to that grave to destroy the works of the one whom he hates and to set the captive free from the power of death. The Bible tells us that Mary wept and the word there is loud weeping and wailing. It says concerning Jesus that he wept, but it is a different a word used there. It is a quiet weeping. He didn't wail loudly, but he was deeply grieved and troubled. And the Jews, well, they misunderstood his tears. They thought he was frustrated because he wasn't there and wasn't able to do something for Lazarus. Then in verses 38 through 46, we see the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Therefore, Jesus, again groaning, deeply moved within, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus says, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Now, that's an important verse to let you know that this, my friends, was a real resurrection. This isn't a figment of someone's imagination. There is a physical resurrection about to take place. This man stunk. There's a big stone over the doorway to this cave. This man in the cave has been dead so long, there's already a stench coming out of that grave. And it is this man that Jesus is going to literally raise from the dead. Jesus said to her, did I tell you? Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they moved the stone and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hearest me. And I know that thou hearest me always, but because of the people standing around, I said it, that they may believe that thou did send me. 
Lord, I have come here to raise Lazarus, that these people might believe and be saved. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, with an intensity of passion and emotion, Lazarus, come forth! And one commentator said, the reason he addressed Lazarus by name is that if he had said, come forth, every grave would have emptied in that whole cemetery. Lazarus came forth. And then very simply, he who had died came forth, listen, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now think about it. That's a pretty amazing statement. Here you have a miracle within a miracle. Here Jesus raises a man who has been dead for four days from the grave. They already have him all wrapped up. I'm sure you've seen pictures of mummies wrapped up in linens. Here, Lazarus is wrapped up and he comes out of the tomb. He couldn't have possibly walked out of that tomb. That's not possible having all this linen wrapped around his arms and legs. It was a miracle within a miracle. Jesus raised him from the dead and then he drew him out of that cave. Then, after he came out, he said, take all of this off of him. In verse 45, we see that God answered Jesus' prayer that they believe. It says, then many of the Jews which came with Mary and had seen these things which Jesus did believed in him. So you see, Lazarus' death was not ultimately about death. It was about life. Lazarus died, but he didn't remain dead. Now, of course, Lazarus did eventually die, but this event prefigured the resurrection of Jesus, and it prefigured our resurrection, which, believe me, will be far more glorious than Lazarus' resurrection. And why is that? Because we are going to be raised from the dead, and we will never have to suffer and die again as Lazarus did. Then the last time we hear about Mary is in John 12, verses 1 through 8. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence, or denarii, and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and had the bag, and bare what was put therein. Then Jesus said, let her alone, against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me you have not always. What a story. Sometime after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and six days before the celebration of the Passover, Jesus once again came to Bethany for dinner and Martha once again served him. He was reclining at the table. Mary came up to him and began anointing his feet with a pound of a very costly ointment, a perfume. And she wiped his feet with her hair and the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the betrayer. 
Jesus got on her case. Or Judas got on her case. He's already determined now to betray Jesus. He sees something that could have been sold and that he could pilfer. So he rebukes Jesus for letting her waste this expensive perfume. And expensive perfume is an understatement. The cost of this perfume was 300 denarii. You remember what one denarii was? It was one day's wage. The cost of a year's salary for Mary to purchase. What was the significance of this anointing of Jesus? Costly perfume like this was normally poured out on a person's head, not on the person's feet. The curious thing is about Mary's anointing of Jesus is that she did pour it out on his feet. That's what a slave did. That was what the most lowly position of all a slave would do. And this was an act of utter humility and servanthood on Mary's part. So when Mary was anointing Jesus' feet, it was not only an act of great humility, but also an act of great devotion and love. She didn't care what anyone thought. She unbound her hair to dry his feet. Women did not unbind their hair in public in those days unless they were prostitutes. She didn't care what people would say about this extravagant display of devotion for Jesus. Mary wasn't concerned and she didn't stop to calculate the public reaction. Her heart went out to her dearly beloved Lord and she gave expression of her feeling in a touching and beautiful act. An act of love and devotion. And we see here, beloved, that loving and showing your devotion to Jesus is even better than spending a year's wages feeding the poor. Jesus says to Judas, let her alone in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor already, that the poor you already have with you, but you will not always have me. He's saying that this woman understands my mission more than any of the rest of you who have been around me for three years. I've been telling you over and over that I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer at the hands of the Pharisees and the chief priests. I'm going to be crucified, die, and I will rise again. And none of you understood me. She's anointing me for my burial. This woman understands me more and my mission more than any of you, my disciples. Why? Because she sent intently at Jesus' feet and let him teach her. She fell at his feet and let him comfort her. And now she has fallen at his feet in worship and adoration. She knew more about Jesus than anyone else around her. Now, you have met Mary of Bethany. When we see her, she's always sitting at the feet of Jesus. The first time we meet her, she's sitting at Jesus' feet to be taught by him. And we are impressed with her teachableness. It is the top priority of her life to sit at Jesus' feet. Is it yours? To sit at the feet and hear him preach the word of God? In the study of the Bible with our families or by ourselves? And in communion with Christ, meditating upon him and his work and reflecting upon his plan for you? Are you really teachable? Or do you have a know-it-all attitude? Do you read into the Bible what you want it to say and ignore passages that go against what you believe? Calvin's testimony was that God subdued his heart to teachableness. And I praise God today that some of you can also say that. 
And then I earnestly pray that more of you will come with Mary to Jesus' feet and pray for a teachable, humble spirit. The second time we read of Mary, she falls at Jesus' feet to be comforted by him. And we're impressed with Jesus. We're impressed with his conquest of death for all who believe in him, with his love for his people, and with his anger toward death and Satan. And we are once again impressed with Mary's submissiveness. In grief and in humble trust, Mary falls at Jesus' feet to be comforted and loved by him at the death of her dear brother. Because of her teachableness, she trusted in Jesus and had deep reverence for him as her Lord. Because she sat at Jesus' feet to be instructed, now at Lazarus' grave she experiences calmness of spirit in the face of tragedy with no expectations of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Mary was simply comforted by Jesus' present. Jesus was at the funeral that day, and for Mary that was all that mattered. He helped her bear her load. And she even learned more about him that day. And she was content with God's will, whatever it was. Many of our troubles arise from our failure to obey the revealed will of God or refusal to be content with the unrevealed will of God. We all fall short here as evidenced by our impatience and our struggling. But Mary learned to be submissive even in the death of her dear brother because of what she learned at Jesus' feet. Do you know Jesus as Mary knew Jesus? Are you obedient to his revealed will, let alone his unrevealed will? The third time we read of Mary, she's sitting at Jesus' feet in sacrificial, self-denying service and in loving and adoring worship. Her relationship with Jesus could not help but bring such a response from her. She had been shaped by what she had learned at Jesus' feet and by how he had, had comfort, comforted her. Does your relationship to Jesus include this response of worship toward him? Like Mary, when she worshipped at his feet? At this point in time, she understands the mind of Christ and the gospel of his kingdom and his mission better than the apostles. And she loved him because of what she knew of him. What about you? Are you devoted to Jesus as Mary was? Or is your faith and devotion conditioned by convenience and by distractions with the things of this world? In Mary, we see the three essential marks of a true disciple. Teachableness, submissiveness, and worshipful devotion. But her primary characteristic was her close and intimate attachment to the person of Jesus. This means more than being attracted by doctrine. This involves more than being attracted to Christ's ethics. This includes more than being attracted to Him because of His miraculous power and because of the blessings and benefit He lavishes upon us. It is being attracted to Him as an incomparable person to whom we long to give all of our love and our devotion. Charles Spurgeon once told of a Mr. Welch, a pastor in Suffolk, England, who was noticed sitting by a walkway weeping. One of the members of his congregation came up to him and said, My dear Mr. Welch, why are you weeping? Wiping the tear from his eyes, he said, I prefer not to say. 
Then this member pressed him. Please, why are you weeping so? He said, I'm weeping because I cannot love Jesus more than I do. Have you ever wept like this? Let me end with the words from that great hymn, Sitting at the Feet of Jesus. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, oh, what words I hear him say. Happy place, so near, so precious. May it find me there each day. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, I would look upon the past, for his love has been so gracious, it has won my heart at last. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, where can mortal be more blessed? There I lay my sins and sorrows, and when weary, find sweet rest. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, there I love to weep and pray, while I from his fullness gather grace and comfort every day. Bless me, O my Savior, bless me, as I sit low at thy feet. O look down in love upon me, let me see thy face so sweet. Give me, Lord, the mind of Jesus. Keep me holy as he is. May I prove I've been with Jesus, who is all my righteousness. Well, that's all the time we have today. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. If you'd like to review today's broadcast, we would invite you to contact us for a copy of the program. They're available for just $5. Mention today's date and we'll send a CD your way. Here's where to write to us. PMB number 402-1484 Pollard Road. That's in Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Again, that's PMB number 402-1484, Pollard Road. Los Gatos, California, 95032 is that address. Our phone number, if you'd rather call, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. Our website is reformedheritage.org, and if you'd like to join us for worship, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. We meet at the Lone Hill Church on 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions at our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, call 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together as we continue our studies in God's Word. Until then, may Christ be your abounding grace. Amen.